0: My biggest thing in this space is betting on people. I, like I, I will bet on people more than anything else. I'm looking at a project whether to evaluate it. I look at the people, the team. That's true for Art Blocks. I think Snowfro and the team he's put together is absolutely phenomenal. And then I think Board Ape's have done executed really well on a lot of instances, especially innovative stuff where where they were really leading the space in many many respects where others weren't. Kevin was putting his name to it, he's putting all his time and effort into it. And I just could not imagine a world where this would not succeed or or do very, very well. Again, short of a Black Swan event. So all of that led up to me just being extraordinarily bullish on it prior to Mint. And then I did buy several on secondary the day of Mint. Obviously, hindsight 2020, I wish I bought more, but I'm very privileged and happy to have those that I do have.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 86, part two of the So This My Way podcast. I'm your host and producer Lingya, and we are going back to part two of our conversation with zeneca Thirty Three, NFT thought leader with nearly three hundred thousand followers on Twitter, the founder of the NFT project Zen Academy, as well as the host of two podcasts, newsletter, and YouTube channel on all things NFT. In this second part, we talked about firstly how he hundredx his net worth in one year through just NFT investments, how to support females in the space how he builds virtual communities. That tension between fencing up valuable knowledge behind the paywall, aka NFTs, versus making all information free for everyone as part of his mission to educate the general public. His thoughts on the current bear market, whether he's actually happy, given all his influence and money, and the kind of legacy he wants to leave behind. And if you haven't already done so, do listen to part one, because we touched on things like how he leveraged his 10 years of being a professional poker player to invest in the NFT space and how he sees money. How he uses FOMO to invest in NFT projects, while at the same time also experiencing infinite regret because of FOMO. What it's really like being part of the Bored Apes community. And other things like, are Bored Apes overvalued? What we it take for the Bored Apes valuation to crash? So just stick around. I'd love to know your thoughts on this episode. So to leave a rating review on this podcast, on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. The link is in the podcast episode description. Every review helps more people discover this show. Now, are you ready? Let's go.
0: Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their why's and how they turn them into realities to inspire
1: you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I saw one tweet where you said that you managed to 100x your net worth in one year. Is there a secret to you doing that? I'm sure everyone wants to do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they do. Uh, Luck is the crux of it. I mean, I think that there's no way anyone can do that without luck. I'd say it's come down a bit at a certain point. It would have been 100x, but then obviously we're in a bear market right now and and have been through a few cycles. So it's probably not quite at that level anymore. But luck is by and large, the most important factor to it being in the right place at the right time. Being fortunate enough to mint the right things, but then I think conviction is another big part of it. So you can mint the right things, but then having the conviction to hold, like hundred xing uh, a portfolio or like a thousand xing an individual asset, it's so difficult because it means that when you've ten xed, you decide not to sell. When you've thirty five x you decide not to sell, and it takes almost a special kind of crazy to do that, especially with something so nascent as NFTs, where the valuations is very difficult to understand and very speculative in nature.
1: It makes me think I, of Moonbirds as you were talking, how people were saying, shrite Hole, Shweighol, Hole.
0: Yeah, Moonbirds. I had never been more bullish on a project prior to Mint than, than Moonbirds. The conviction, yeah, that to me is the most important part. And it's really difficult to have because by nature, the space is so speculative and high risk and, and uncertain. But if you can find a way to have a really strong conviction in a project or a sector or an industry or a movement or anything and invest into it early and be a part of it and then hold on and and just feel confident and not go crazy if things come crashing down and be able to take that sort of risk, that gamble, then I think that's really, really powerful. and, And just finding doing research and understanding what people might want in the future and having a conviction that allows you to hold. I contribute most of the success to art blocks. I think that's where I I had that conviction fairly early and and just started collecting and buying lots and lots and lots. And as a platform and and most of the art, there went up tremendously and then down a lot. I think it's come down 50 to 90% across the board in many collections. But I haven't panicked once. I've been continuing to buy because I still have that conviction in in the long-term prospects of it. So yeah, I would say luck and conviction are are the two key points
1: the books envision in Moonbits You said earlier, I thought was very interesting. I've never been more convicted. Mm. And I noticed you actually interviewed Kevin Rose before mm. they launched Moonbit. So what was it that allowed you to be so certain that this would do well?
0: So it goes back to the proof collective, the proof pass that Kevin released, which one of my largest regrets in the space is not minting or buying in early and, and having a bunch of those, but that's another story. It's infinite regret in this space. However, the proof pass is a thousand NFT collection For a private discord that he put together uh, for serious collectors in space. And it basically was a Dutch auction starting at 5 ETH that minted out at between 1 and 2 ETH and sort of hovered around that price for a while. And then a few months later, it was sitting at 40, 50, 60, 70 ETH around that point prior to Moonbird's mint. And so clearly already Kevin and his team had been able to create something of significant value that people valued and execute really well. And they had done a few things they'd executed really well on. One was the Grails project where they sort of gathered together some really excellent five-star S-tier artists in the space and, and put together a really innovative, a mint for their holders, provided a ton of value to them. And seeing how that they could execute on that and and also knowing Kevin and his history and background in working in te- tech companies and hearing him speak on his podcasts, modern finance, and then proof. I just had a really high level of conviction that Moonbirds was going to be just a really well-executed project that a lot of people would want to be a part of. And so this was prior to really interviewing and chatting with him personally, but it was from listening to him be on other interviews and and talk about the project and his vision and how he saw things playing out. My biggest thing in this space is betting on people. I, I will bet on people more than anything else. I'm looking at a project, whether to evaluate it, I look at the people, the team. That's true for art blocks. I think Snowfro and the team he's put together is absolutely phenomenal. And then I think Board Apes have done executed really well on a lot of instances, especially innovative stuff where where they were really leading the space in many many respects, where others weren't. Kevin was putting his name to it, he's putting all his time and effort into it. And I just could not imagine a world where this would not succeed or or do very, very well. Again, short of a Black Swan event. So all of that led up to me just being extraordinarily bullish on it prior to Mint. And then I did buy several on secondary the day of Mint. Obviously, hindsight 2020, I wish I bought more, but I'm very privileged and happy to have those that I do have.
1: I wonder with Kevin, as you mentioned, he was in tech, he was doing Dake and... This is the thing that I found when I was speaking to friends and you mentioned as well, people in the space, they love the underdog and they want to go against the establishment. Kevin couldn't be more establishment. He's very much deep in the Silicon Valley space and you could work as hard as you want. That doesn't mean your project will succeed. And I would have imagined because he was from the establishment, maybe with VC money behind it, that people might be wary. Was that something that was a concern? How do you think about that?
0: I would say it was certainly a concern for some people, and it's a narrative that is running through the space. But I would say, and again, this is a larger discussion, but it's sort of for better or worse, that ethos was a lot stronger a couple of years ago. But the people who found crypto early, who believed in the fundamentals of it and passionate about decentralization and being the underdog and battling against uh, centralized entities, large centralized entities and VCs. As time has gone on and as more and more people are entering the space and the level of technological savviness or desire for independence goes down, I think. Basically, as more retail investors join the space, I think that narrative is shifting and more and more people are sort of, quote unquote, being okay with VCs funding projects. And by the time Moonbirds came to launch, it had basically become de facto normal. Like Everyone sort of knew that VCs were, again, for better or worse, involved in many respects. Yuga had raised a bunch of money and so many of the protocols in the space are VC-backed, OpenSea and a bunch of others as well, of course. And so it's almost like, while yes, some people are not thrilled with the prospect of that, there are clear benefits as well. If you have a lot of funding to begin with, you can execute more quickly. If you have that experience, you know what it is to hire and build out a team and to just do things at a scale and speed that a lot of projects had not up until this point. I think that not all VCs are created equal as well. I think that's the other thing. It, it really depends on who it is that that's backing the project, what their incentives and goals are, and timelines and timeframes are. Are they trying to extract and get a return on their money asap, or are they really very much long term minded? And hearing Kevin talk about True Ventures, his VC fund that he's very heavily involved in, I know that he has spoken about how their approach is very much long-term minded. If they invest in in a platform and protocol, I think they invested in Sushi. And I remember hearing him talk about it. He was like, we're okay with extremely long vesting periods and things like that because we believe in the protocol for 5 10 20 years, we want to help it grow and succeed and, and be a self-sustaining entity and provide guidance and support. And that's the other thing VCs can do: there's a network and they can help stuff like that. So I'm not the biggest fan of VCs, but I think that they can provide value in certain instances in the right way. Hopefully, in decades, we're done with them and it's all decentralized and we have decentralized VCs. Until then, yeah.
1: I wanted to talk a bit about women founders in the NFT space. I've interviewed quite a few of them, and one of the common walls that they tend to say is that women-led projects tend to not take off. You look at the apes, it's gone up to 95. You don't see a wall of women anywhere near that at all. And I wonder why you think that's the case. Why is it that women-led projects haven't taken off?
0: I think there's an important distinction to be made between women-led and ones where the NFTs themselves are women-focused and centric because the CEO of Yuga, Nicole Muniz is, is a woman. She's leading Yuga Labs. She's leading Board Apes. She has been for a long time. So the most successful project is, woman le- is led by a woman. So I think a lot of people just forget that fact or ignore it or whatever. Because the Board Apes themselves don't have maybe a lot of traditionally female-centric traits, or maybe she is not publicly out there advocating for the project as a woman, the project or anything like that. I think that there is a distinction between that and then projects like World of Women, where the NFTs themselves are women, and there's a focus on it being a woman-led project or a, a project for women. I do agree that they just haven't quite found that level of success as, say, the Board Apes or Doodles or Moonbirds now. I mean, obviously, it's a very complicated area and there's a lot of factors playing into it. I think one would be that up until now, the the crypto space as a whole and NFT space catered towards men more than women. I mean, certainly even now. And a lot of the participants who are buying and investing are still men. I haven't checked recent numbers, but I think certainly up until say a year ago or six months ago, there were more men in the space. And I guess men are just traditionally more likely to buy an NFT that appeals to them or like that represents them more than anything else. So that might be one reason why they haven't taken off as much. Another one, I was talking to someone about this yesterday actually, is that because there's now this label of woman-led project and they're sort of identified as that, it's almost as if they're competing against the other women led projects. So people are like, oh, which women led project is going to succeed? Is it going to be World of Women? Is it going to be Boss Beauties? Is it going to be Women and Weapons and, and Women Rise or whatever it might be? The focus is on that rather than the rest of the merits of the projects. And again, it's sort of like they're competing against one another in that respect, which, yeah, I don't know. I mean, competition is good in, in many respects, but maybe the market doesn't have enough participants that want to invest in, in women-led projects yet. And and that's obviously an issue, but I do think things are getting more progressive as time goes on and, and inclusive. And certainly now compared to when I first got in, there, there's a lot more thought and mindfulness going into when it comes, to sort of, what types of traits do you want for the project, and what sort of like what would appeal to not just white men in their 30s, but you know all sorts of different backgrounds? And so I think uh, we're moving in the right direction, but we're not in a fantastic place, that's for sure.
1: One of the questions I get a lot asked a lot by my crypto friends who are male is how can men help females in the NFT space? I wonder if you have any mm. thoughts
0: on that. I think just generally being supportive and maybe going a little bit more out of your way to lift up and elevate women that are trying to create in this space or, or be in this space and provide value, especially if for whatever reason, like the market isn't viewing a project or there's not much of a spotlight on it, maybe because they're on I think that just generally being supportive and spreading education is another big thing. It's a tough question to answer for sure. I mean, also just like voting with your wallet as well. Like that's one of the biggest things.
1: I think that's one of the common ways they would just say, "I will buy an NFT from their project, even though I don't expect it to ever go anywhere, but I'm buying it just to support the females." But at the same time, they would then say, "But I don't know if I should have done that because if I buy into a project that I know is going to fail, then isn't it better for me to let it fail rather than mm. giving that small hope?"
0: Yeah, it's a really good question, and I think about it often for all sorts of projects, not just specific to to women-led projects. There's unfortunately a lot of projects and founders I speak to and that I I want to support their projects. But it really seems unlikely to me that they're going to succeed. I think at the end of the day, there's so many unknowns and uncertainties in the space that you never know what's going to succeed and what's not. Whether it's a straw that breaks the camel's back or some minor little thing that there's butterfly effect where just because you minting might be what makes someone else mint and what makes someone else mint and they see that. And I would say if you want to support a project, a founder, creators, because you like them as people, you like their work, even if you think it's going to be a financial success. I think that's still something we should all do. But I would say even more importantly, the best thing you can do for basically anyone if you want to support them is help spread awareness for their project and tell people because at the end of the day, it's not that difficult to create an NFT project. It's getting easier as well with the tooling that we have. The difficult part is getting other people interested in that project because there's so much competition and we live in an attention economy and attention is stretched so thin in so many directions. If you can write a Twitter thread or create a YouTube video or just tell a friend about a project that you think is really cool and just spread awareness, that I'm pretty sure is is what any founder would say. They would appreciate that support way more than one mint at 0.08 or something like that.
1: So just before you go to the whole attention creator economy aspect, I have noticed that there are a lot of, quote unquote, women in Web3 kind of events. I've not seen a male in Web3 kind of event. And I wonder if this sort of gender-specific event is actually helpful or is it more divisive?
0: Yeah, you're right. I haven't seen any (laughs) men in Web3 events. And whether it's helpful or divisive, I don't know the answer. (laughs) I think that maybe we will never know. It's one of those things where we'd have to look at an alternative reality where we see both play out and see what the, the results were. I think to me personally, it feels like a net positive. I think it might provide a space for women to feel more comfortable talking about Web three and NFTs, or certain women who who would be more comfortable talking in that space. Not all, of course. And this is true of any group. It can be really difficult to sort of jump into the conversation and, and be part of it and feel part of the community. And if there's anything that would make you feel more comfortable, whether it's being part of a smaller group or like-minded people or a small group of people that you feel more comfortable with. Like, let's say you're a little bit older in your 50s, 60s, 70s. You can't keep up with Twitter and you can't keep up with Discord. And, and then, you know, maybe there should be a Facebook group for people wanting to learn and chat with each other about it in a more calm, relaxed environment. Maybe it's about getting together at a cafe to meet up and talk NFT. I don't really see it as divisive. I think it's additive rather than anything. It increases options. So for certain people, it'll be helpful as long as the narrative doesn't denigrate into like an us versus them or uh, we're going to support them but not this one as long as it's additive and supportive and helpful and done with positivity i think it's only good things yeah
1: i completely agree and i often think that it never has to have more events and more opportunities for people to come in because as we discussed way earlier it's so difficult to get in there are so many terms it just doesn't make sense. just buying and transferring and you can have many wallets how do you create all those it's very confusing and it brings to mind a conversation I had recently with another guest coach Eric Toda. He's the global head of social marketing at Meta. And I asked him what his thoughts were on Web3. And he basically said the big issue is just access. It's just not accessible at all mm. for the majority of people. We often forget most people don't even own a phone. Mm. I wonder if you have any thoughts on just how do you make it more accessible?
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that is obviously a bigger problem and issues. It's more like access to the internet. So so it's not Web3 specific. Even for those who do have access to a phone, most people access the internet via a phone or mobile device and not a laptop. And so many apps and websites are native to like a desktop experience or a computer browser experience and not mobile friendly. So I think ensuring that we build tooling and infrastructure that is mobile friendly going forward is super important. To me, obviously, the logistics and the physical accessibility is probably the biggest hurdle for getting the entire world into Web3, and that's a much larger problem to tackle. I think that Web3 will help that because it will free up capital, I think, in certain areas that can be directed in like a worldwide scale and allocated towards helping those less privileged and educating them. I think education is probably the most important part about onboarding newcomers to the space and well, okay, maybe two things. One is education and, and the other is infrastructure in, in terms of like, currently, it's very difficult for someone to get into like into NFTs and crypto and understanding how the blockchain works, how a wallet works, custody, seed phrases, gas. It's just so foreign and difficult to understand. So I think figuring out ways to make that experience easier, as well as figuring out ways to make whatever that experience is easier to understand. And I think those are the, the, the key things that are really going to propel Web3 mainstream in the next several years.
1: So you are known as an NFT thought leader and you must be one of the most prolific content creators in the space. You have a newsletter, you have two podcasts, you have YouTube, you have your own NFT Project Zen Academy. Me running just one podcast is so overwhelming and I can't imagine you doing all of that. So I wonder, I I believe you first got into this whole content creation NFT space with a newsletter. How did that all start?
0: Yeah, it is overwhelming. Let me just say that as well, for me as well. So I started with the newsletters where I began in, I believe it was June, 2021, June last year. And the reason I've always enjoyed writing, always. I used to have a, a poker blog when I was back as a poker player. And then over the years, I had ideas to create like a food blog, so like food and, and travel. And, and I just, none of that ever really took off because it wasn't quite the right fit. But I've always had that like proclivity towards writing and reading. I've identified that I learn best when I write. If I have to explain a topic to someone, if I have to explain a project, then obviously you need to research it. You want to make 100% sure that you're getting accurate information across. And so taking that time to understand it and to be able to explain it and write it is what helps me learn. So I thought, let me start a newsletter to just start writing about whatever topic or project. And I'll learn a lot in the process. I never really um, had Massive ambitions or goals or or thoughts that it would really take off. But I just thought, let me just start, get it out there. And that's what I started with. And it was, it started off going pretty well. Like, I think from the first couple of letters, uh, it's already starting to propagate and get a reasonable amount of readers and and circulation because people were sharing it. And part of that surely was just basically there was very little NFT content when I was writing back then. And the space was fairly small. So people would just share it around. And that really helped. Sometime after that, maybe within uh, a month, actually, my friend Jamie mentioned before. So we both got into, we both bought board apes in, in May, and was kind of thinking like, well, we have these commercial rights. What can we do? What should we do? And we had both always kind of wanted to create a podcast at some point and again never was a great topic and we didn't know like maybe he wanted to do it by himself and i wouldn't do it by. but then when this came up we thought well maybe we create a podcast about the board of your club or with our board apes or doing something in that vein so we spitballed and came up with so when we first had the idea we didn't quite realize how much work went into it or anything like that it was still a case of we wanted to strike while the iron was hot so we thought well everyone's talking about apes right now we should just get our podcast out and so i think it was a thursday and we started chatting we're like well when do we want to release we're like monday should we just get first episode back I think it was about six weeks later that the first episode actually went out and about eight different test failed recordings and issues. And yeah, we had to find a sound engineer and we had to get a logo and music and then figure out just and an equipment and figure out how to actually speak on a podcast. But yeah, that's what came next. And that was honestly the most fun content I create because we're two friends and we're just talking NFTs and talking about what's going on in the space. And yeah, that's how it all began. And then it's just sort of exploded and kept evolving from there.
1: For someone who's listening to this interview and they really love what you are doing, they want to hear more about all your other thoughts on your, all your other different platforms, how do they begin? How do they decide which to start with? Because there's a lot out there.
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and this is sort of highlighting a flaw in sort of my whole ecosystem where I don't have a great starting off point. I, I sort of always direct people to my Twitter because I think that's sort of like, it's got my stream of consciousness and day-to-day thoughts. Plus, you can find links to my other content and material of my link tree. My Twitter and, and Zen Academy as well, where I, I spend a good amount of my time and have people join. But for my content specifically, yeah, I'd say Twitter is sort of where I've set up home base. And then from there, you can sort of figure out what content appeals to you. Because something that sort of didn't dawn on me till way too late. So I, I was focusing so much on my newsletter, which I love and I still love and, and, and hope to get back to writing more of. But it's basically that Seventy to eighty percent of people don't read long-form written content these days. They, they will not read an article that takes them forty-five minutes to read. People want YouTube videos, they want podcasts, they want sixty-second YouTube shorts, TikTok, Instagram, etc. So, uh, figuring out like how to reach the like a wider audience and uh, share the same type of content but just in different formats is something I've spent the last several months working on. But that's why, depending on what you like, I would say what I'm most proud of is my newsletter. It just holds a special space in my heart. I put a lot of thought into my my letters and so I would say that if you have the time I would recommend going there and reading some of the old letters. Some of them are some of them are a bit dated and and were relevant to things happening at the time but there are certainly certain ones that I think are relatively timeless and talk about more macro or big picture things.
1: Hey there. Dropping in to say if you've been enjoying this conversation so far would you consider buying steaming a coffee? You can find the link in the description of this podcast episode. Every little coffee that you buy does help this podcast to grow and it would be much appreciated. I felt like your newsletter was a way for me to understand what you cared about most. For instance, you Mm -hmm. talked about generative art a lot. So I knew that was something you loved. You talked about the creative commons a lot. So I knew that was something that you always cared. You cared about a lot. You mentioned this thing called Zen Academy. What is it? How they begin?
0: Yes. So for those watching the video right behind me, I've got my virtual background is a Zen Academy themed. The idea for this I wanna say June as well last year, but surely it couldn't couldn't have all happened at once. So let's say July last year. Hugely uh-huh. creative
1: period of life.
0: It was time is so weird in this space. But let's say July last year I had the idea. Basically, I had been spending so much time flipping NFTs, trading aggressively. I was starting to feel a little burnt out difficult to stay on top of my portfolio, having to sell things all the time, figuring out what to sell and just getting a little less fun. It was still obviously very enjoyable, but difficult to maintain. But I'll say even more than that, I felt that I wasn't contributing to the space or adding to the space by flipping. It's not a really rewarding thing to do aside from the financial upside. And that's something that I kind of struggled with as a poker player for 15 years and never quite reconciled. The world does not need professional poker players. There's no real value being added to the world. We're not, we're not really helping. We take money from those who are usually less fortunate financially or intellectually or psychologically or whatever it might be. And the dream case scenario is, okay, you are providing an avenue for wealthy businessmen who want to recreationally play poker to play and blow off some steam. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, there are people who have gambling issues and addictions are just losing paychecks playing poker. And and it's never felt good, but I had no other skills and I, I just struggled. I never really reconciled. And I did other things in poker to try and add Anyway, 15 years of that, and I didn't love the idea of doing more of that sort of like flipping extractive type thing in whatever space it was. But then I had started creating content, my newsletter and the podcast were starting to be popular, and people were like, really appreciating it. They were enjoying it. They were feeling value from it. And that made me feel really, really good. That made me feel a lot better than basically anything else. Like, oh, I'm actually putting something out there that's adding value or providing help to people in the space, in the world. I thought I want to lean more into that and do more into that. And so naturally, I thought about my own NFT project because I think that in the Web3 space, you think about whether it's monetized content or make a full-time career out of it. And in the Web2 space, you could create like a Patreon, you could have a paid email subscription and all sorts of stuff like that, ads on YouTube, etc. I wanted to do something Web3 native. And so that's where I had the idea to create Zen Academy. And the first iteration in my mind was it was going to be sort of like this one-stop shop where anyone new to NFTs could come and learn everything they needed to know to understand NFTs. And the reason was basically all of us then, and even now, we all have a friend or we have family members who come to us and they know that we are into NFTs and they say, hey, you're into NFTs. Can you sort of help me? How do I get started? And there's no good answer. There's there's a lot better answers now, but especially back then, it was like, all right, go watch these YouTube videos, read these articles, follow these people on Twitter, join these discords, uh, and then ask me questions and then their first question is what is discord it's it's just really really you know a steep learning curve and you have to hold their hands so it's like what if i could just make this website this platform where everyone says i go to zen academy history of nfts you can read how to set up metamask what to look for but then i realized how monumental of a task that really is to, because of how much there is to learn and how just diverse and expansive NFTs are, let alone all of crypto and Web3. And you'd have to explain a blo- how a blockchain works and all that kind of stuff. Not to mention trying to keep information current and up to date because of how fast things move. So then I, I sort of got overwhelmed and I said, well, actually, I, maybe I don't want to do this. It's going to be enormous. It's going to require so many more people. It's going to require funding and it was starting to make me a little stressed. So I basically just put a pin in it. But I had already created a Discord server. I said, you know, it would be cool to have my own community. I was in all these other communities, but it would be nice to have my own community to talk about what I'm up to and, and connect with people in that way. So for I think a couple of months, that was kind of the end of it. I had in my mindset, all right, I, I thought about Zen Academy and decided not to do it and let's move on. And I'll just keep doing some flipping and focus more on my content. Just on a personal level, and, and just leave it at that. But then in October, I had been planning to go to the US for NFT NYC Eight Fest, and there was an Art Blocks event in Marfa. But due to COVID travel restrictions, I couldn't travel. I couldn't go, and so this all of a sudden, like this four to five week period that I had sort of been hoping to be away for and traveling freed up, and had nothing nothing in my calendar. And so that's when I said, well, maybe now I can and should revisit Zen Academy and see maybe there's a different approach to take. And that's basically what happened. I revamped the idea and said, instead of launching a full flesh platform and academy and one-stop shop, let me just launch as community first as this Discord server, a gated access Discord server where the token would give you access to the server, as well as what I was saying, lifetime access to Zen Academy. At that time, Zen Academy was the Discord server. It was me being in there, and that was it. But I knew that I would want to build more and do more in the space. I just didn't know exactly what and how. And again, this comes back to having no roadmap. It was like, you know, I'm going to be around. I want to create content. I want to help people and spread education. And I want to make this my full time job and not be flipping and trading and having to worry about doing that and do it in a Web three native way. And there's only there's there's certain things you can only do if you have a community that owns your NFT. For example, gaining access to the Discord is one. Gaining access to in-real-life events is another. Partnering with other projects where you know they can see what NFTs you hold. We, we airdrop art to holders. It's just made infinitely easier having an NFT. So that was the genesis story of how Zen Academy came to be. So that, that was October. And then, yeah, it was basically six weeks of building and, and figuring out how to do it and structure it. And then in early November, we launched as an NFT mint. And I actually structured it so that there were two different tiers of membership. One is the Genesis Zen Academy tier, and that's like your basic membership. Uh, and the other is the 333 Club, which is uh, more targeted towards those who are builders or founders in this space who have their own project and maybe looking for more advice or consulting. Because I had been doing some consulting for a few months at this point, and basically, There were far more people wanting to bring me on as an advisor than I could realistically work with. So I thought maybe if I create a community where I can dedicate more time to everyone in that community, or some amount of time, and be more active there, as well as hopefully have the community help each other and you know share common knowledge and bounce ideas off one another. And that's what the three 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 club was and is. And so the two tiers of membership, the three 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 club mint price was three point three three ETH. I have a thing for threes. That's just a number that was yeah very in my mind last year and. So that was that. And then for the Genesis membership, I went with a mid price of 0.033 ETH. So I wanted to make it fairly accessible. I toyed with the idea of free mint and and other options, but ended up with this. I'm pretty happy with it.
1: There's only 7484 Genesis token. Why is that? That seems like a strange number.
0: Yeah. So the way we structured the mint was we said it's going to be an open edition. So a two-week period, anyone can come and mint however many they want. So there's no cap. There's no hard supply. There's no rush because gas was really high at the time. So we said, well, wait till gas is low. You have two weeks to mint. The contract was nice and optimized. So it it only really cost, I think, $10 to mint however many you wanted at that time. That's what ended up happening. We had 6,488 minted during that one week period or two week period. And then uh, we reserved an extra thousand for giveaways collaborations partnerships I think we've given away about 150 of those just because I really like the idea of a free mint and I didn't love the idea of having a paywall for people to want to learn and and be educated I also say we have a free membership option as well which is for the discord server anyone can join and get a role that you can view all of the content you can see the discussion read the guides watch videos but you just can't actively participate in talking and chatting to avoid scammers and spammers as well and you can't participate in like the giveaways for prizes and mintless spots to add value to the genesis all this.
1: obviously a lot of nfts you need to get it in order to join and be an active member most of them you can actually join and just read it and not be an active mm. participant But i've always thought that that's such a strange almost anti-ethical way of doing things if your purpose is to be an educational platform if you're meant to be the beginners intro to crypto but i can access i can read if i have questions i can't even ask And I can't even access these people. Probably these people are very well-known on Twitter and they don't have their DMs open. Even if it's open, they probably wouldn't even see it. So how do you think about that? Because you said there were fronts and cons.
0: Yeah, I think about it a lot. And we were sort of actively working on how we can bring more people into Zen Academy and help them. The next step is what we're going to basically... It doesn't solve a lot of that but we're going to partner with other communities and projects so let's say if you own a curious addies nft you can join and be verified in zen academy and and participate and work with just as many communities as we can to get people so if you have like one of 10 entities you can talk the other thing is we have a bot ticket option so if you have a question you can ask it and we'll answer like usually the questions are like specific to how do i join zen academy why would i join or technical issues but we not infrequently get people asking just general questions, and we do a good job of feeling those. So, Curious Addies, the project I just mentioned. They have come up with a, they've solved this problem. Basically, they've come up with this project or platform called Ember. Dot help, where anyone can go and ask any question and someone will be there and reply to it within, I think, 24 hours, but usually less. And so they've integrated in their server as like a bot anyone can type and answer a question. We're going to get that in the Zen Academy server soon, but you can just go to the website as well and ask a question. So we're going to promote that as well within Zen Academy and externally, because I think that's just such a great way to help the space.
1: Yeah, I love it when I was speaking to mine, she's like, they basically gamified it and it just really took off in the space. That's why they created ember.help.com, yeah. which just fantastic. I was one of those lurkers on Yozan Academy because I wanted to do research. And I thought it was very interesting when you made that announcement saying, I don't want to be like any other NFT project. And you basically burned it to the ground the way that you were Mm -hmm. doing things. Tell me what was going on at the time, what your thoughts were.
0: Yeah, so I think this would have been about two months ago now. We launched in November, but the Discord had been around since I think August. In the early days, there was this really sort of magical, strong community sense and vibe. And I had just sort of, noticed that disappearing as time went on. We were sort of losing our soul. and and I noticed at first, and I looked at sort of the metrics, the discord insights, and like engagement was down. People weren't as active. People weren't checking the server as much. And I, I just thought about why was this? And one of the reasons was we just had way too many channels. We thought that maybe there should be just tons of channels and resources for people to go and learn and ask questions about any particular topic and read conversation. But it turned out it was overwhelming for me and veterans, let alone for someone new to the space. So, Step one was burning it to the ground and getting rid of 99% of the channels and really simplifying it. But step two was sort of, I had realized that I spent the first two or three months of this year looking at what other projects were doing and trying to sort of replicate their methods for success or looking at more about seeing what other projects were providing and what I thought people wanted and providing it to them in terms of like more collaborations and mint list giveaways and like AMAs in the server with other projects. But uh, it dawned on me that we don't want to be like other projects. And and what attracts people to Zen Academy, I think is making it not like other projects. Another thing we were looking at is like alpha calls and getting out sophisticated bots, with tool, like analysis and tools. And while they're great and, and extremely valuable for certain servers and people, it's not very beginner friendly and it sort of like splits the attention in too many areas. And so I thought about what did attract people to Zen Academy in the first place. And it was sort of like, it was me, my content, my sort of approach. And so I, I thought about, well, A, I can be more present and be more involved. And I can sort of try and, and bring in other content creators and other people into the team who have that same sort of values and ethos and can provide that sort of voice that's very Zen Academy and, and nothing else. And so, yeah, we went through this period where we just stripped ton of the servers, simplified things. I spent all time and engagement has sort of turned around. And I'm really, really feeling good about where we're at at the moment.
1: Since you feel so good about where you are at the moment, what does success look like at Zen Academy?
0: That's a really good question. That's one that I ask people a lot. Success to me is what we are right now. Like to me, it's to continue being what we are. So I'm always weary of What did happen a few months ago, scaling and growing and like losing ourselves in the process. I just don't want that to happen. I understand that there are going to be projects that come along that do what we're trying to do in many respects and do it way better. They're going to be bigger educational platforms, better for people to learn about NFTs, more structured courses and guides and everything. People will raise VC funds and they'll have bespoke websites and, and mobile apps, which is fantastic. That's going to elevate the space, but I am weary of doing any of that if it's going to be at the cost of the community and, and the vibe and the ethos we have. I'm a huge believer in taking things slow, work life balance. So we try and take weekends off at Zen Academy, even in this crazy space. I'm a big believer in mental health and staying sane and supporting one another. We have a few values and, and core ethos at Zen Academy, but two of them that I really like. I think our fundamental one is we make haste slowly. So we'll try and do things, but we'll take it at our own pace. And another one, which I saw recently as a tweet that I really loved, is direction is more important than speed. And so we're just figuring out the direction we're moving in, making small pivots and generally inching forward at a pace that we're happy with, just continuing to try and do good things, help people, I think is, is really core and anyone that's in our community, but also the wider community and just be a place that people enjoy hanging out in and get some value out of. I feel really good where we're at. So to me, we're already successful. And as long as we keep doing what we're doing and don't, Ruin ourselves or fumble the bag, which I'm trying hard not to, which actually doesn't take that much work. It's very low stress, I would say.
1: I would love to explore more of the concept of community by going to another conversation I had with another guest, Professor Robin Dunbar, who formulated Dunbar's number. Mm. And I mean, obviously, he's done lots of research into the whole relationship, how the people, you know, how many friends can one person have at any one time, going all the way back to the Stone Age. And when I asked him about Web3, He was very, very firm and he said that it's just impossible to build a proper relationship if you don't meet them in person, if you can't see the whites of the other person's eye. But the whole nature of Web3 is that you don't see them. You might even have avatars, you have an ape instead of a person. So I wonder what your thoughts are on just firstly, building virtual friendships and relationships.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting topic. I think the definition of what makes a real relationship is important and I think also changing. So while I agree that it's impossible to have most humans for the history of humanity would consider a real relationship, a real connection, it's impossible to have that without looking, being physically with someone. And it is very different, the relationship you have being physically with someone than being online, even people you talk to all the time, even if you you voice chat, even if you video chat, even if you are in the metaverse, even if it's VR, it it is very different than being in person. So I, I would agree with him that it's like, you can't replicate that you can't but i think that you can have something that is distinctly different but perhaps equally as powerful perhaps more powerful in certain respects in terms of friendship and connection and i think that's sort of what we're seeing in terms of the community and the vibe and for many people there's a level of comfort that comes with the the separation the physical separation and and so you know people feel more free to open up maybe and be more themselves share more of themselves without Fear of anything potentially happening in the physical world, and I think that it's just a really a different type of relationship, a different type of community. And, and there's also like again with the power of technology, you can do things digitally that you, and you cannot do physically. Like you can, you can meet more frequently because of people are all around the world, or you can be in a gaming environment and be playing a, a video game together. One thing that I, I doesn't I'm pretty sure doesn't exist yet, but I think will is sort of like therapy in the digital world and in the metaverse. And I think that a lot of people have fear and anxiety of going to a therapist. And I think that bringing that into someone's home is, is going to be helpful and beneficial. And an example that I always draw on is that I'm very arachnophobic. I hate spiders, but I want to not be arachnophobic, right? I want to get over it. And what's one of the best ways is immersion therapy. It's like surrounding yourself with it. That terrifies me. I'm really anxious. I don't want to do that. But imagine if I could put on a VR headset and be in a virtual world therapist office space where there are now spiders crawling on me or around me. It looks like that. It feels like that. My mind will be split where I'll be like, I'll be terrified and anxious, but I'll be able to say, I 100% know that I'm sitting on my couch at home. I'm safe. I'm comfortable. I'll get used to it. So I think that just by nature of the digital world, there's things that are possible and relationships that are possible that will never be possible in the physical world. But similarly, as he said, you can't replicate what's possible in the physical world completely.
1: To build those relationships, you must first find these people. And as you said earlier, most people don't even know what Discord is. I mean, for me, I didn't even use Twitter before I started exploring what Web3 was. So how do you even begin to network and put yourself out there? Do you just start writing through the threads and just throwing it out there into the space and hope someone starts
0: speaking it up? I would say asking questions is is the best way. To me, that's just the best way of meeting people, getting to know people, getting people to know you. And especially if you're starting out, but honestly, wherever you are in your journey, by and large, people in the Web3 space, but also just, I think, in nature, want to help other people. And and I feel appreciated if they're asked a question because they're like, oh, this person thinks I have something of value to add to them. I'll take the time to respond and, and feel like I'm adding value back. So yes, join Discords, join Twitter, ask questions follow people, ask questions for who you should follow and just keep going from there. And I will say that so much of the space does revolve around Twitter and Discord at the moment. But as the space grows and opens up, we're starting to see distinct communities on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook groups and traditional social media is also embracing NFTs and crypto more and more. And so you don't necessarily have to step out of your comfort zone and and join Discord. But I would say that you are probably missing a lot if you don't, uh, at least now.
1: You've said before that NFTs are inevitable, but that mainstream adoption would not be happening overnight. I wonder when it does become mainstream, what does that future look like?
0: I think it looks like the technology will be abstracted away. And for the most part, most people will not even know or recognize or understand that they're interacting with NFTs On a day-to-day basis and and they probably won't even be called nfts they'll be called something else we're already starting to see this i think instagram and maybe even coinbase they're calling them digital assets or digital goods uh digital collectibles maybe and i think the vernacular will change. NFTs has a bit of a negative connotation right now. And I think that the techno- obviously the technology and the word the nomenclature there won't change, but like in the public's eyes, there'll be different words and it'll be abstracted away. I-, I say that NFTs will go mainstream when my 97-year-old grandma and my eight-year-old niece can both interact with them in the same way that they can be using an iPad and playing a game. That technology is so seamless and easy and, and second nature. We need to get to that point. It's going to take years and years and years, just like it did with computers and the internet. But I... I really do believe it's inevitable because it's inevitable that our lives are going to continue to be in the digital age and space. I don't think we're ever going back to pre internet pre-computers or anything. And I think that NFTs are just a clear value add and a layer of technological sophistication that allows for innovation that we have never seen before that will make lives easier and just make the world a better place that it is inevitable, but it's going to take time.
1: I wonder what your thoughts are, given that this is inevitable, but we are currently going through a bear market.
0: Bear markets are also inevitable, (laughs) especially in a a space as speculative and high risk and and everything as crypto and NFTs. People are going to overextend themselves. People are going to speculate and and there's no real value. And it's also highly unregulated as well. So we'll see things like the Terra and Luna collapse where top 10 coin goes to basically zero and so when that happens you get bearish markets and also not to mention just the macro economic situation in the world is also not great right now and that's felt in crypto so bear markets are inevitable i think that it will probably it like flush certain people out some people just came to make money and to flip they probably kind of like me in 2016 2017 where i didn't have that conviction i didn't really understand the tech and and see the future and the vision so when the bear market hit i left and and the true builders they stayed and and the true believers stayed they had conviction and financially they were rewarded probably in other ways they were rewarded and if they felt that they were contributing and feeling fulfilled and found careers and jobs that worked for them and i think that the same will be true for any future bear markets in crypto and nfts
1: what does your crypto portfolio look like in this bear market and how can people think about their own
0: it i mean it hasn't changed a whole lot and i don't do too much trading but i try and consolidate as much of my portfolio as i can to what I call blue chips and the projects that I have the most conviction in, and that I think are the most likely to be around years and years and years from now. Artblocks is number one by far to my holdings in terms of quantity and and conviction and and money and assets. And and I have more conviction in that than anything else. Bored Apes assets and and that whole ecosystem, Yuga ecosystem, yeah, it would have to be number two because I have a lot of conviction and faith in them. And I believe that they'll be around for a while, but. Less so than blocks but I would say a considerable margin, I think. It's a lot more speculative. And then it's other PFP projects, Doodles, Moonbirds, and then almost like a smorgasbord of like small to medium tier projects that I think have potential and, and maybe they they make it or not. But I think if they're around in a few years they'll, they'll, or even a year, they'll do very, very well. And that's everything from PFP projects, membership tokens, gaming assets, art from one-on-one artists. Yeah, everything really.
1: Do you ever, a few have and to share what you're interested in, what you're going to buy? Because I, I'm thinking, of, for instance, say Elon Musk, when he speaks the market moves. And mm. when you speak, a lot of people just follow you blindly. Does it worry you that people just jump in just based on what you threw out?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm hyper cognizant about what I say, how I say it, when I say it, who I say it to. I think it's in a market so immature as the NFT market and crypto market. And by that, I mean like New and and not financially enormous. Also, I guess socially immature. It's very easy and common for one person who has two or three hundred thousand Twitter followers tweet something and move the markets, and that's dangerous. And I think that yeah, people can get hurt by following you blindly. And obviously, there's manipulation that can take place, and and there are bad actors out there. And so I'm I'm really cognizant to try and act in a way that I think is ethical and and upholds my personal morals. And that usually means like if I do talk about a project. These days, I generally try only talk about projects that I'm positive about. I don't like to denigrate or like dunk on projects and, and say that they're bad because you never know what the team's going through, what the founders, you don't know the full story and maybe you're missing something. I would say the exception is if there's a clear scam rug pull type thing or or there's a security issue that you need to alert people about. So that's one thing. And the other is if I talk about a project and positively, just know that I don't have a hard rule, but I'm like, I, I'm not selling any NFTs related to that for quite a while because I think that's like, I don't think it's bad to... Talk positively about projects that you're you're bullish on and that you really like, and to share that information. I think the danger comes if you're then s- like actively selling while you're sharing that information. I think that's that's really unethical. The other thing is disclosure and disclosing my holdings like as much as I can that is reasonable and feasible and and makes sense. And the other thing is not front running. So if I plan to post about something not the day before going and buying a bunch of those assets to get ahead of the curve, or if I have inside information. 'Cause I talked to a lot of project founders and consultant advise and I know that oh they're gonna drop a huge announcement soon, not acting on it and also not sharing it with anyone else.
1: I recently found this out that apparently anyone can drop an NFT into your wallet and you can't even drop mm-hmm. them. And apparently, I don't know if you're aware, some people were watching your wallet and they saw certain NFTs being dropped and then they quickly mint, thinking, Oh, surely it's something that it's quiet yeah. it. but if Seneca's gonna kind of mint it, it's big and they realise it's not it's a rock pool. So it just seems there's nothing you can do, right? There's nothing you can prevent. It's not like you can put a warning around your wallet saying, don't fold everything. I'm going to put everything out
0: there. You're right. There's nothing you can do. The warning mm. idea is actually interesting because I could, oh. like on OpenSea, put like in your bio, you have a bio where you, you could write something. So I'm actually, after you said that, that's actually a really good idea because people will do it. They, they will watch my wallet and see what's airdropped and scammers basically can make it look as if I minted it. And so people see, oh, it looks like Zanica bought this. And Then they just copy, like again, FOMO or they they think I bought something so it must be good, which is a terrible strategy. I don't recommend that to everyone because A, my situation is very different and my strategy is very different. I might be buying something thinking I'm going to hold it for five years. I might be buying something with no expectation of profit. I might be buying something just to support someone or because I like it or whatever reason, who knows? So yeah, just copy trading in general is bad. But it's even more so bad because yeah, like you said, anyone can drop anything and then it looks like I minted or bought it, but it's actually a scam collection. There's nothing there, they're just gonna disappear with your money. I'm or worse, direct you to a website that's malicious and gonna drain your wallet or something like that. So yeah, don't ever mint something because you see anyone else mint it. If that does happen and you're interested or curious, you know, just ask other people about it, join join the Discord, open a ticket in Zen Academy. There, there will be ways to verify and communicate, but yeah, it's a terrible strategy. And But yeah, you're right that there's nothing anyone can do to stop others from sending NFCs to your wallet. That's by nature of how the blockchain works. They can just send whatever they want and you you can't refuse them. I had a... A call with one of my accountants yesterday, and I was talking him through that and telling him just how difficult it's been to do my taxes because of how many NFTs they are, and then how do you value those NFTs? And as an airdrop, do you have to pay tax on anything? And he was like, "Well, how many do you have?" And I checked, I had forty-one thousand three hundred transactions. <laughs>
1: wow. <laughs> yeah, I do not envy your accountant.
0: Yeah, I don't. I it's it's my least favorite part about Web three, dealing with accountants and lawyers, but it's necessary.
1: Well, I wouldn't take personal offense to that second part.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to say my least favorite part about Web3 was accountants and lawyers, but I've changed it to say just the legal work and the accounting work, dealing with yeah, that's the bad part. The accountants and lawyers themselves are wonderful people.
1: So, I mean, clearly you've done a lot of success. A lot of people are following you. How has that affected your happiness?
0: I would say I would be slightly happier now than I was maybe a year, a year and a bit ago, but I would say it hasn't enormously shifted it from, say, this time last year. It's just like different life situation, different problems, different opportunities, different things to do and to deal with. And I think that by and large, I very strongly believe that say money or followers or anything external doesn't really impact happiness after a certain point, after you're sort of out of poverty, after you have your basic needs met, then I think you really have the ability to react, decide for yourself how you approach life, how you feel about every whatever situation you're in. Because I think at the end of the day, we can't it's out of our control to decide what situation we're in. I am at a position right now where I've had a lot of financial success over last year, and I've had a lot of, I guess, social success, and a lot of people are following me. But it could disappear tomorrow. It could completely all go to zero. And th- there's infinite situations where I wouldn't have been in this situation. You know, maybe I I, I made the wrong investments last year. I didn't buy board I Didn't buy art blocks. Didn't go well. I went back to playing poker, and I think that being able to sort of find a way to be content with. Your life situation, regardless of outcomes, is, is really, really important. And uh, I try to focus on that actively. I'd say, but I, I definitely do feel a little happier now. Honestly, I, I think the biggest part would probably be that I'm now doing something that I really love and that I feel exciting, interesting, new. I'm contributing to society. I feel like I'm good at it, all that kind of stuff. So whereas with poker, after 15 years, it was getting to be a bit of a grind, a monotonous, and I just didn't, I wasn't as enthused by that.
1: Is there anything that people listening can help you with?
0: It's a wonderful question. I think just generally being kind and being nice and just like helping others. I think that's all I can ask for or want. I want others to help others. And, and I think that for the most part, people in this space do do, do that and, and are really helpful. And I think just be kind and empathetic, I think.
1: Is there anything that you believe in that most people don't?
0: oh that's a really good question too well i mean that's interesting because then i don't know what most people believe i'm non-religious but then i don't know if most people are religious and so then i believe in et cetera. Et cetera. nothing wild i, I don't yeah. think any wild comes to mind
1: well thank you so much Annika, for your time i love to end all of my interviews with the same question so the first is this do you feel like you have found your why
0: yes a hundred percent. So there's this Japanese concept, Ikigai. And I feel like I found that again, what I was alluding to before about finding, I feel eternally fortunate that I found it basically.
1: And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind?
0: I would be happy knowing that I made one life easier or better. Like just, yeah.
1: And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person?
0: Hmm. Patience, I think is a big one, and empathy. I think I think empathy more than anything. And by that, I mean the ability to see life and situations from the perspective of others. So I think personally and emotionally, that, that is so helpful in terms of just being content as a human and, and helping others. But in terms of commercial success as well, understanding what people want, how you can help them achieve what they want. And often it, it might not be what you immediately think of, but yeah.
1: And where can people go to connect with you, finding more
0: about what you're doing? Twitter. Uh, my Twitter account is probably the best. Although, I could, yeah, I, I should be tell, directing people to YouTube and other places, but I'd say go to Twitter because from there, you can find Zen Academy and the 3 through 3 Club. You can find my YouTube channel. You can find my podcasts. You can find my newsletter. But Twitter is sort of home base. It's at Zeneca underscore 33.
1: And that was the end of episode 86, part two. The show notes can be found at so my forward slash 86 dash two. And do stick around for next week because we're meeting one of the world's most famous entrepreneurs, the co-founder of Evernote. Yes, that note taking app that everyone's used or heard of at least to talk about his journey as a Russian immigrant. How he built his first few startups leading to Evernote. And now, mm-hmm, which is actually in the name of his current company. Why he thinks being a founder is really, 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 truly not as glamorous as you think. And why he thinks that blockchain is a communist propaganda. Want to learn more? Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and see you next Sunday.